Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. There's a line in the movie Annie Hall where the Woody Allen character says, A relationship is like a shark. You know, it has to constantly move forward or it dies. Well, I think that's also the key to aging well. You've got to move forward or you'll just... Well, maybe you won't die, but you'll stagnate. Which means you're not aging well. I'm happy to say that in today's guest, we've got a real shark on our hands. She's someone who's constantly moving forward, growing and living fearlessly. Deborah Goldblatt has been a publishing entrepreneur, a nonprofit consultant, a World Cafe host facilitating open and intimate conversations, and a facilitator and coach working with Solia, which promotes constructive cross-cultural dialogue using innovative new media technologies. Currently, Deborah is a screenwriter focusing on end-of-life themes, and she and her husband have just moved to Mexico. Deborah joins us from San Miguel de Allende. Deborah Goldblatt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Jenna. It's great to have you on the show. Can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and your childhood? Well, I was born in New Zealand uh, in 1950, and I was the daughter of uh, an airline pilot, um, actually just just really be- launching his career into the airline business. Um, he was in the RAF during the Second World War, and he was an adventurer. And by the time I was seven years old, uh, he decided that having three kids um, living all the way at the bottom of the world, that uh, he thought maybe it would be time to go and see what the rest of the world was like with three kids on the road. So we took off. uh, We sailed, actually, all the way from New Zealand to England. And uh, he worked for a, a... really, you know, beginning stages of an airline called BOAC, which became British Airways. And we made our way through the thick fog to funny little English schools, (laughs) wearing long socks up to our knees and freezing our bones off. I mean, we were kids, after all, growing up in New Zealand, and we used to go to school in our bare feet. Uh (laughs) So it was a big, huge cultural change for us, and none of us liked it very much. Uh So my dad took a job um, in the Middle East, based in Beirut, working for, uh, it was called Trans-Arabia Airlines at the time, Uh and um, we all, he just carted us all off to Beirut to live, Uh and that suited us much better because it was, you know, a beach community, very cosmopolitan, we could run around in Uh flip-flops, and, you know, and swim and enjoy the sunshine and, you know, and, and really become kids really on the street speaking a little bit of Arabic here and a little bit of French there and a Mm -hmm. little bit of English at home and mix it all up. And that was sort of in the heyday of of Beirut. Well, we moved there in at the end, we moved there in the summer of 1958. Okay. So yes, it was, it was, uh, even though things were always, always bubbling under the surface, dangerously bubbling under the surface. All of us kids, I have three brothers, Mm -hmm. all look back on that time and say, you know, compared to our kids today, 
didn't we feel really safe? Mm-hmm. Weren't we free to run around a city, a cosmopolitan, crazy mm-hmm. city like Beirut and hop in and out of cabs mm-hmm. singularly? I mean, me as a little girl, really, mm-hmm. and get to where I wanted to go safely? You know, there was just an innocence, a time then where um, we felt protected, and and we were in a lot of ways, but at the same time had a great deal of independence. Mm-hmm. And how long, and, and, and what happened after Beirut? How long did you stay there? Well, in 1967, when the Six-Day War um, uh, broke out in right. early June, mm-hmm. um, my mother uh, was also very, very ill uh, mm-hmm. with cancer, mm-hmm. and she died sadly, just a few days before the war began. So our family came apart at mm-hmm. the seams completely. Mm-hmm. We were so lost without her, mm-hmm. and uh, we were the only ones of our huge New Zealand family that had left New Zealand to come and travel the world. And so we all decided the best place for us to go back to was New Zealand so we could be embraced by the family. Mm-hmm. And I was finishing up school. I was going to boarding school in England uh, while living in my family were living in Beirut, as were my brothers. Mm-hmm. I was just finishing up my A-levels, which is the equivalent of, you know, your first two years of college, I guess, in the States. And so we went back to New Zealand, all of us, and, you know, started to rethink our lives for a few months and mourn and grieve with the rest of our family until it was time for me to go back to school. And I said, so where, what am I going to do now? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Your mother was quite young, too. She was 43. She was just 43. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I was, you know, I, I, I had every, every intention of becoming a ballerina. I was a dancer all through my growing up years. Mm-hmm. I had amazing training, Russian ballet training in Beirut. Mm-hmm. And um, I was really intending to go to, to you know, professional dance school. Mm-hmm. And, it, of course, New Zealand was very far away from that dream at the time. So in the hopes of continuing that dream, my dad said, you know, take your younger brother and travel back to England and continue your schooling. I will probably take a job in England and, you know, we'll all be together there again. And uh, so that was the plan. And then by December, when all of us were getting ready to leave school and go somewhere for the holidays to see our parents, Mm -hmm. I still had a missing dad. I didn't know what dad was going to do or where he was. I I had heard, you know, sort of around the edges that he was in Western Samoa thinking Uh about a job there. And then I get a telegram, and the telegram says, just bought convertible Mustang, going to live in Hawaii. Come on out. (laughs) And the next thing, two two airline tickets, my brother and I arrived, and we arrived just before Christmas uh, in December 1967 and began our lives in America. Wow. I started uh, as, a, uh, as a bank teller, mm-hmm. and, um, and I was going to the University of Hawaii, and, um, you know, my dad said, look, I'm really having a hard time making a living to feed us all. And mm-hmm. being the girl in the family, you know, you're probably going to run off and get married to somebody soon. So <laughs> you can leave college and start working. <laughs> Wait, was the ballerina thing completely off the table at that point? It had to be off the table. Yeah. I mean, I was interested in the hula, but that wasn't going to take me very far. So I started in banking. And, you know, I mean, literally, I, I was so green. I was converting dollars into pounds, shilling, and, and pence still, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> every transaction. Wow. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, but it gave me a, sort of an interesting base 
you know, to understand business, to understand right. money, to understand right. the American economy, mm-hmm. um, to understand how to deal directly with people, Americans. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were very attracted to me because I had this sweet little English accent. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, I sort of moved through the ranks fairly quickly mm-hmm. and then decided, you know, that uh, Hawaii actually wasn't the place for me. You know, Polynesian paralysis was beginning to set in. <laughs> oh, that's great. You know, I've never besides heard that working phrase. In banking and going to the beach, there wasn't a lot more for me there. So um, I ended up coming adventure. to L.A. Mm-hmm. You're, you've got your father's adventure spirit. And yes. The, the, the Kiwi, the Kiwi spirit of adventure. It, well, you know, it is, it's, it's very much the Kiwi spirit. I mean, yeah. you really have knocked it on the head there. I think that's, um, you know, when you come from that part of the world, you know that the rest of it is all out there waiting for you. And you, you either, you either, you know, catch the wave or you don't. And right. most New Zealanders do, at least for a really, they call it actually, um, that transitional time between leaving college and maybe, you know, finding a, a, a partner and, and, uh, settling down. Um, you know, between 18 and 22, those college ages where you leave New Zealand and you really take that worldwide journey for a couple of years and you work in different countries and, mm-hmm. and then you come back and decide what you're going to do. It's with kind your of life. like being in the Amish culture. You go off and you get to see the outside world and decide whether you want to come back and embrace the full Amish life. Oh, you mean the Mormons? No, the, in the Amish world, they do that as do well. That too. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, and then the Mormons do it too, sure. As missionaries, yeah, I right. suppose. Right. But, um, <laughs> yeah, that, you know, for, yeah, so mm-hmm. for sure, no. Los, well, I mean, Los Angeles was attractive to me because I still had a boyfriend in Beirut. Uh huh. And he had come to do an internship in Los Angeles for a few years, and I really wanted to hook up with there him. There you go. There you go. There's the hook. <laughs> and it's pretty close. It's it's like five hours, right? Yes. Yeah, flying, right. Yes. Right, yes. right. So how old were you at that point when you moved to L.A.? I was 21. So did you and know what you were going to do when you went to L.A. work-wise? Yes, I, I, I was very attracted to the film business. I suppose performance and, you know, just being on the stage and, and mm-hmm. drama mm-hmm. and everything was mm-hmm. all connected to my dance life. Mm-hmm. And so it seemed, you know, a natural thing for me to kind of dip into uh, Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. see what I could make of it. Mm -hmm. I wasn't drawn to the acting bit of it so much, but because of a Lebanese director working in commercials there, I was able to get an interview for a production company, and he was so excited that I could speak some Arabic that he hired me immediately. And that introduced me to everything Mm -hmm. that Los Angeles offered, you Mm -hmm. know, in terms of filmmaking and, you know, just the whole, the whole structure of the film business, really. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was, that was my opening, and, um, and I took it and ran with it. And mm-hmm. I had, a, 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 I would say, probably seven or eight years of producing commercials for that company and others. I became freelance quite quickly and was a production manager. And by the time I was 27 or so, I uh, started to get itchy and thought, you know, this is not going to be so fun as a single woman, spending evenings, you know, taking clients out, mm-hmm. and then having to get up at 4 or 5 in the morning and being so responsible. You know, producing is a, a huge responsibility. Mm-hmm. And when am I going to have time to have a life? Yeah. So I went down, and one of my favorite people in the world was my grandmother. Mm-hmm. And she was obviously living in New Zealand and had, since her young, her 20s, and had six or seven kids by then. 
And I went down to visit her, and I said, you know, I just need to take a break. I'm going to take six weeks and travel New Zealand and get to know my country again and think about what I want to do now with this particular time in my life. And I did have a wonderful time with her. It was a really special and wonderful bonding time. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the reasons I adore being around older people and, you know, this, I think, need for for caregiving or feeling that it's an essential part of life Mm -hmm. um, for all of us that, you know, it now plays out in in lots of ways in my, as I'm getting older, I'm going to be 65 this year. And and I just see, you know, the importance of that relationship uh, as a result of the times that I've had with my grandmother, a a very inspirational person in my life. And on the flight home to Los Angeles, I had an idea and I started to alphabetize everything that had to do with the film business from A to Z Uh in terms of uh, sort of the yellow pages. And, And I decided I'd call this thing that was coming coming up in me or it's kind of like an aggregation of information and a good place for resourcing all of the crews all of the you know basic essential things that are needed in putting a commercial or a small film together and seeing if I could pull in companies and freelancers and people that were interested in putting themselves out in that field um, as advertisers. So I decided to call this publication LA411 because 411, the numbers, had really just kind of been invented into our phone system as a place you go for information. Mm-hmm. So LA411 seemed like a natural, and I registered it, and I started to categorize all these things, you know, from animal wranglers to, to location scouts to mm-hmm. people, crew people to post-production people to all the contracts and kind of, you know, taking all the legal language and making it into, into uh, a, a language people could understand directly, producers could access directly and make it easy for them and... And I put it all together into this sort of compendium that was called LA411, Mm -hmm. a production reference. I worked with you on the 1984 edition, and that was the year that LA had the Olympics, and the cover reflected that. I remember that. That's right. That's Mm -hmm. right. So that would have been the third edition. Mm, Oh, third edition. Okay. Yeah. Well, that was early days for you. (laughs) Very early days. Yeah, yeah. But it was fun because it was... um, you know, very much like production, you pull a crew together, you all work together, Mm -hmm. you make something happen, Mm -hmm. and then you all take off and you do something else for a while. Right. Right. So it was the same kind of model, except, um, you know, here I was trying to make a business of it. Mm -hmm. And I would say after maybe the fifth year of doing that, I could really start to see it it was going to make money. Mm And um, by the eighth or ninth, it was really making very good money. Mm-hmm. And then I would say probably by the 16th or 17th year was when I thought, you know, at some point I think I should sell this mm-hmm. um, and think of and, 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 you know, do something really different with my life. By that time, I had uh, an eight-year-old and I had two stepchildren and I was married to a cinematographer who was traveling and doing production all over the, making films all over the world. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to, you know, have the flexibility. I wanted to be able to raise a child and, you know, and be the partner to my husband and, um, and experience all the wonderful things he was doing too, and not be on a day-to-day as, as involved in my business as I had been. Mm -hmm. Can I go back for a second to your decision to actually form that business? 
Was there any moment where you said on the plane where you were thinking about this business, oh, maybe I shouldn't, or I'm terrified? I mean, you were really flying by the well, almost literally flying by the seat of your pants. I was. <laughs> and and were you afraid? I mean, of what what would happen if you failed, or how did you? No, yeah. no, I didn't. I, I don't actually operate that way. <laughs> I I um I I had very scary moments. I had times during you know the years of my publishing company where the printing company who was printing the book closed down i mean they actually had to shut their doors and went bankrupt and they had all my negatives and mm-hmm. all the artwork and everything in there and i was responsible to you know a large number of advertisers at that point and had to negotiate my way out of that hole um there were scary times i think running a business is a scary proposition but it's i like kind of living on the edge I think it feels in a way that if there aren't uncertain times in my life where I'm being pushed or challenged, then I I start to feel a bit stale. And, you know, I I like the excitement and the adventure. I like getting the most out of life. Mm -hmm. So, no, I, I think being faced with challenges is a great stretch. And even though you you know that you feel uncertain and doubtful about which direction to go in, there'll be a direction. Right. And you know you can't say for certain. Well, gee, you know, will this decision lead me down the path I want to go? There's there's no such thing. You've just got to sort of you you know leap in. But I think you know as Goethe said, with both feet. Yeah. You know if you if, if you do the double Dutch door deal, <laughs> where you've got you know one foot in and one foot out. Right. It's, you're going to wobble. And yes, it's probably going to get more scary. But you know, when you make that commitment, and you decide, then you just move forward. Mm -hmm. So you left LA about 25 years after arriving, something like that? We left LA in 1994. And the reason for it was, we had Two, our two stepkids, my stepkids, were living in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And so for, you know, 10 years or so, we did the hop back and forth to see them, and they came to see us for holidays, and um, we had a second home in Utah at Sundance, mm-hmm. where they have the, originally where they had the film festival. And I knew that if I couldn't prove, in a way, to my potential buyers of my business that I was really operating my business far from the center, mm-hmm. more from the rim, mm-hmm. that it wasn't going to be assailable. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. So that was a strategic decision on my part, to move out from L.A., to separate from, you know, really being at the epicenter of, of the business and its knowledge and being seen, you know, as, as, as someone that carried that kind of weight, mm-hmm. that it would be a good time to move away and to be closer because... Uh, I mean, it was a dual thing. It was my professional side of my life being looking at that and also to my family side of my life of mm-hmm. looking at our son being closer to his half-brother and sister mm-hmm. and forming, you know, that closer bond with them and being part of their lives as they had always, you know, come to meet us. We wanted to come and meet them. Mm-hmm. So we found a, 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 a small town near San Francisco airport because I knew I had to commute quite a bit, <laughs> mm-hmm. as did Stephen, you mm-hmm. know, for his, for his work. And we settled into a Northern California life, which was you know, much more provincial, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. um, but environmentally very interesting. Yeah. We, you know, loved the Northern California climate, more seasonal and more, as far as I was concerned, more beauty and, you know, kind of a more a, a suburban way of life for a while until he was into his teens. 
and um, I was able to sell my business in that time. Three years into that move, um, uh-huh. I went to a conference on publish a publishing conference, and I went to a seminar. Uh, and approached the speaker and said, um, you know, you've just outlined all the criteria a publishing company needs in order to sell its business, and I meet all that, all that criteria. <laughs> uh-huh. So um, what do you think I should do next? And he said, why don't you come and talk to me about selling your business? Uh-huh. <laughs> and he was the guy that bought my business. Uh, how about that? That's pretty And amazing. I didn't look back after that. You know, uh-huh. it was like, okay, that's it. You know, I didn't go looking, you know, for in the future in bookstores and things to see how are they doing and what are they doing mm-hmm. and what, you know, what does it look like now. And, you know, and, and I would hear as I ran into old colleagues and certainly people in the film business, oh, Oh, I can really tell you, LA Four and One is not at all the same as it used to be. <laughs> Since you've sold it, it doesn't have this and it doesn't have that. And I go, don't tell me, don't tell me. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I was moving into a whole different time in my life of you know mothering, right. uh, you know, a preteen and getting particularly interested in what was interesting him. Mm-hmm. And what I found was interesting to him was media. So I got a call from someone uh, who had a nonprofit. Uh, it was called the Just Think Foundation, and it was helping teachers teach media literacy to their students. Great. And that was kind of unheard of in the United States then. So that was essential. But uh-huh. And yes. I, I was going to ask you how becoming a mom changed your view of aging, if it did. Um, when I became a mom, I think... For me, it was much more about being a professional person and balancing my life with uh, my my family life because my family life was an extraordinary kind of life. I think that I had to figure out how to be on location, for instance, for six months of the year, educate my child, and have a business that I needed to be present for at key time. Right, right, and that's hard. How 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 did you manage all that? I mean, I know you have a lot of energy, but <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that it was it was sometimes great and sometimes impossible. Mm-hmm. It seemed, you know, that to satisfy all those needs. Just some things just had to fall by the wayside. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my friendships were very important to me, keeping up relationships with my former production colleagues because they were also central to my business. Mm-hmm. Being a parent and being able to show up for important times for my mm-hmm. kid in school um, and being the main caregiver, too, for my child a lot right. of the time. Right. Some things, you know, didn't work out so well. It was like, you know, Ed... I'm just going to have to take you out of school and we're going to have to do some homeschooling here now. Oh, you did some homeschooling with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, sometimes I had to say to my husband, all I can do is two things here. I can be a mom and I can be a business owner. Uh And, you know, the wife thing is just going to have to, you know, you know, (laughs) I have to step out here for a bit and, you know, um, and how did he respond to that? And that was pre-Skype, you know, and this is pre-internet and all of that. So a lot of phone calling. So, I put in a ton of miles. I traveled a lot. And I just did my absolute best. Yeah. Um, And what it has to do with aging is how much wear and tear this was really on me and my health. So in looking at that, you know, I just had to be really kind of hard-nosed and say, I need six days here. And, you know, I had to say to my nanny if I had one at the time or or a grandparent 
Mm-hmm. You need to step in here because I just need to go have a retreat for six days. Well, good for you. you. Know? Yeah. So good for you. stuff like that. It just, yeah. you know, it was like prioritizing and reprioritizing all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, and often my husband would say to me, you know, geez, I haven't seen you in three weeks. I mean, you know, <laughs> so what the hell's going on here? <laughs> and well, I would say, you know, same here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good for you. Touche. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we mind it and we fell through the cracks sometimes and sure. we didn't do so well mm-hmm. and I'd say you know during those really rocky times we called on therapy and we had that as support and I mm-hmm. think that's essential is sometimes you just need some folks to help you guide you through those rocky times yeah and um, we found a we found a good therapist uh, you know who helped us heal from you know some real separation and mm-hmm. and and pulled us back together you know so we could see one another and that was probably that was taking place in late 90s mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. And it was a whole reassessment time. By mm-hmm. then we had, our son was about 12, and Stephen was doing a lot of action movies, and mm-hmm. they, weren't, they were actually zapping his soul. I think they were very, very hard on him, mm-hmm. both in you know, terms of material producing or shooting films that were just you know, big blockbuster kind of action movies, and me selling my business. So we took two years out completely for ourselves. And he stopped doing movies and I had finished, you know, I had sold my business and I didn't take on anything new. And we took our son and we went to France. We went for two years. We actually had our home that we, that we, we bought an an old, wonderful vineyard in the south of France. Mm -hmm. And Stephen took up still photography and I learned how to cook and speak French again. And, um, and we put our son into a school, into a bilingual school, but, he wasn't thriving. <laughs> he was uh-huh. like, Mom, don't you realize I'm an American? Yeah, right. And you kind of yanked him out of his comfort zone. <laughs> completely, completely. And, you know, um, I said, you know, get real, Ed. You know, you're part of this family. <laughs> <laughs> get real, Ed. Yeah, you know. <laughs> um, oh, my gosh. Well, what a wonderful gift for you to be able to do that. To, yeah. To do what you needed to do. We yeah. did. We, all for nourishment. Uh-huh. And the, the agreement was that when we did this, that between the three of us was if one of us really, really doesn't find this is something we can do, you know, that we can speak up and say, this is really not working for me. I've tried this. I've tried that. <laughs> uh, you know, what was this the- feels good. This doesn't. And it was our son who fi- who said, mm. I need to go back and I need to go to an American school and I need to hang out with my friends. And we said, okay, we'll go home. Right. And so how old was he at that point? He was 12 going on 13. He was 12 going on 13. And your stepkids were significantly older, so you didn't have to worry too much about them. No, they were already, yeah. you know, young adults. Yeah. Right, right, right. right. Okay. <laughs> but they came yeah. and, oh, uh, who you wouldn't? know, to visit. They <laughs> yeah. came and visited yeah. and, you know, had the same opinion. What on earth are you guys thinking, you know? <laughs> but I have to say, when we took him back to school, to eighth grade, he was way ahead of the other kids. Oh, yeah, Sure. No he doubt. knew all about how to cultivate oysters. Cool. That's really <laughs> he cool. He knew some of the names of brandies and cognacs. <laughs> okay. Useful information like that. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. And it really brought out the traveler in him. He's a highly curious kid. Uh-huh. Um, he's very adaptable. Uh-huh. He's kind. He's interested in other cultures. And he's not afraid to take risks. Yeah, well... It's funny because I think maybe Stephen is a little less likely, not like you in that way. I know, I remember, I mean, 
he's incredibly talented. And but you are the adventure in that configuration, I think. He's. I'm a little ahead of the herd. I have to yeah, say. Yeah, you are. <laughs> yeah, but but um, spoken like a it takes him a little longer. Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. it takes him a little longer. So. Yeah. I don't know if you want to step all the way into Mexico yet, but uh, but it is, I yeah. think, interesting between partners and between folks that have been together for a long time. Generally, there's one over the other whose life is moving a little faster and right. things open up for them and they're looking at what could be new and what could be exciting or what they could grow from or change, be changed by. And I think for him, because of having a life on the road and constantly being confronted with change mm-hmm. and having to really meet the mystery, as it were, in the moment mm-hmm. as he creates and works you know, on films, mm-hmm. that his home life for him had to be steady and home was really important for him mm-hmm. in terms of being consistent and you know, and knowing that he knows where his bed is when he goes home, mm-hmm. which makes total knows, sense. And, yeah. and he did not—he yeah. did not like it if I moved the furniture around while he was gone. <laughs> <clears throat> so yeah, you know, kind of like that. And so if I was ready to just sort of leap, he'd say, "Don't even talk to me about it. I've just come home from a movie, and I just want to like right. settle in here, and I can't even think about the next moment." Right. Know? Well, well, yeah. tell us about your decision to move to Mexico. How that came about. Um, I think that a life in film production is wonderful. Um, it takes a great deal of stamina. Mm-hmm. I think that from my perspective and from maybe I can speak for Stephen too, I don't think that the business has necessarily evolved as we've become more technologically savvy. Mm. I think it's there's an approach towards film now that is uh, one of... It's easy now that we have all these easy little, you know, digital cameras and everybody can do it mm-hmm. to we'll fix it in post. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the real skill... Post-production for our listeners. That's after everything's been shot and you're in the editing yeah. room. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So in terms of a skill base and being able to... If you, if you look at all the wonderful films that have been made, you know... T- looking at the studio system in the 50s and then, you know, having the, the, I think the studio then getting into, you know, all the the big action movies as we were just talking about Mm -hmm. in the 90s, the Batmans and Lethal Weapon and the various, you know, big movies that were shot in those years and the demand for more and more and bigger and bigger and better, which still actually is fundamentally what the film business is about now. You know, if you take a look at all of the, what they call tentpole movies, Mm -hmm. which are these big, huge productions that are going to make millions and millions of dollars worldwide, Mm -hmm. is what they want to invest in. Mm -hmm. And the pure narrative, you know, the the simpler stories, and maybe even, in essence, the truth of living, of being a human being, People are struggling to raise money for those films. Mm-hmm. They're struggling to make them. And so when you get that bit of money to make that wonderful narrative, producers have to cut people back and cut people back, you know, to where they're working for bare-bones money, mm-hmm. but they're working for long hours. And somewhere in here, we've lost our way. And so it's a struggle in the film business. Yeah. It's a real struggle to stay alive and for an older person, and I think this has probably been true, you know, since film began, it's a very ageist business. 
It's a very, very ageist business. So in a sense, you know, as you gain experience and you gain a big reputation, people start to look at you as like, you know, it's kind of scary mm-hmm. uh, that Stephen's showing up on the set here. It feels a bit like dad's on the set. Uh-huh. But you he's know, he's uh, like a Yoda. He's he's like this girl. He's just an amazing talent. So I would think there'd yes. be a fair amount of intimidation going on there. There's a fair, you know, and yeah. he's intimidating, you know, generally. I think yes, people, <laughs> you know, he has a being being a cinematographer requires that you take a stand. Right. You're the filmmaker. You're taking the lead. Mm-hmm. And very often, strong cinematographers are hired by writer directors who need that. Mm-hmm. They need propping they, up a little bit. They need the propping up. They need mm-hmm. the direction. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the guys that are sort of, they are, they are leading the pack mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that the director has the freedom to say, no, I don't like that. No, I don't want to do that. No, I, you know, and they have to find ways around it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a bit more of a comfort zone, I think, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, not, not saying that directors don't have a very hard time before they even get the film made mm-hmm. and a very hard time after they've made it, but mm-hmm. just on set in the actual, you know, functioning of a cinematographer. Mm-hmm. It's very, very demanding and requires a lot of stamina. Okay. Yeah. So after my business life, I spent the next 12 or 13 years consulting to nonprofits or not-for-profit companies, as I like to call them. Mm-hmm. Um, consulting to help in fundraising and in outreach and in development um, and finding ways for nonprofits to to raise money, be able to market themselves a little bit better. Um, and I and so I did that for a number of, uh, of of organizations, having to do primarily with youth and um, inter- the intergenerational issues mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and working families and. When I started to get into working with more international nonprofits, I started to get interested in the dial in the field of dialogue itself. Mm-hmm. And it's hard work. I mean, it's very, the nonprofit world is a real struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not easy. Some are very successful, but it's it's always you know as soon as you just finish one one event, you know you've got to crank up and think about the next. I just, I serve on the advisory board for the Human Rights Center at the UC, at UC Berkeley, mm-hmm. and they've just um, won the uh, MacArthur, uh, the MacArthur Genius, Genius Award, Award mm-hmm. um, in 2015. It's a million-dollar prize. Mm-hmm. And just because they've won this at a major university, um, so many people are now are coming to them and saying, can you help us, you know, help us fund this or, right. you know, whatever right. it is. Or you guys don't need money now because you got all that. And such a small percentage of that. It's a, it's a, it's a prize that comes over a 10 year period. Uh-huh. It isn't a chunk of money, it, uh-huh. you know, in the long run. It's a wonderful thing, but they had to leverage that in order to raise more money. But the minute they won that prize, they were off and running with having to think about other ways in which to write grants and to raise right. money and so on. So, right. It also requires a great deal of dedication and commitment and stamina. Yeah. So I think with the two of us simultaneously looking at our lives and where we were putting our energies and what contribution we'd already made, we decided that we didn't want to be in a position, my husband's going to be 70, or is actually, no, he's already 70, and me turning 65, we wanted to create a place of being able to make a choice to do movies or not do movies, Mm -hmm. work on a project or not work on a project. So we had to restructure our financial lives 
where we were living and the property we were supporting and uh, what that required in terms of income all the time. And we just said, let's not <laughs> do this. Mm-hmm. Let, what if we did this? And honestly, I mean, Jenna, if you had told me I was going to live in Mexico a year ago, I would have laughed. I forecast that you guys are going to live in Mexico and you're, you know, going to be living a small town life. And if a film comes up, you guys will, you know, run off and do that for nothing if you want. And your kids will come visit you on occasion. And, you know, you'll start a whole new chapter in your lives. I would have just said, no way. But you got there a lot faster than Stephen did. Well, we started talking about this move when a number of his great mentors and directors he'd worked for died. Uh-huh. The deaths, I think, of three major people in our lives that I think propelled us into the conversation hmm. and pro- propelled him into joining me into the conversation. Uh-huh. Um, his last experience with making a film in New York, he chose to do so that I could be with my best friend as she was dying of cancer last year. Hmm. And I think it was just the realization of what he was doing and how he was spending his time and how soul-sucking the experience was mm-hmm. and the reasons he was doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, just given what we were just talking about in terms of stamina, right, right, right. Uh, it was grueling, the schedule. And it was, I had a grueling experience in, in, a, you know, in a whole other realm. Mm-hmm. But it was so depleting. We came home and said, wow, you know, if we continue to do this every year, what do we have left for family? What do we have left for our lives? And here we are in this beautiful spot living in Berkeley. And, you know, certainly we know we just feel so grateful that we have this precious piece of land here. But are we enjoying it as much as we could? And where could we best now use our resources in terms of the time we have left and what we're really interested in doing? Mm-hmm. So we continue to have that conversation, but it was this you know, people are passing on, and the people that he would be hired by his true mentors, the the directors he loved to work with, were um, were passing on. And you know, the younger generation, as we were talking about too, were a little bit scared of hiring really experienced people that would maybe look over his shoulder or feel like maybe they could control things more than they would like. Mm-hmm. Um, producers and directors. Mm-hmm. So it was shifting, mm-hmm. and we could mm-hmm. see okay. Mm-hmm. Um, let's place ourselves in a, in a choice point rather than in a victim place. L- I like that language. That's really yeah. good. Yeah. Just, la- just see what's out there in front of you and say, mm, what do I choose right. and what do I not choose to right. do here? And so we started to take some trips. When you know we were at home, we said, let's go for a couple of days and look at Santa Fe and see how that feels. And then let's go up to northern, uh, you know, way up into the northern part of the country into Washington State and some of the islands up there mm-hmm. where there are, you know, retired communities and lovely places to land. Let's go and take a look up there. And in the meantime, we, you know, we're traveling to Hawaii where my family still live. Mm-hmm. I have brothers and my dad, who's now 95, still mm-hmm. lives. And we were also traveling to Europe where his mum who's 95, also lives in London. Um, So it was Hawaii and Europe and then different places in America. And we were invited to come down to San Miguel and to take a look and see. We'd been told it was a lovely place to come and full of lots of things to do. And um, immigrants from all different places in the world, Canadians and international 
folks, Europeans and Americans. And it has a large expat community, doesn't it? We prefer to call ourselves immigrants. Okay, immigrants. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so we like to see ourselves as the reverse, you know, um, which is we will speak the language and we yeah. will integrate and we will honor the customs and we will value ev- all of that. So yeah. that's what we're beginning now. We uh-huh. chose San Miguel for that reason. It's Interestingly, demographically changing. It's been a yes, a, an expat community for quite a while, uh-huh. since you know the 40s. But because of Mexicans' economy improving, it's now the Latin American country ahead of Brazil. Brazil's just in deeply diving into recession. Uh, the Mexican economy is is rising a little bit, and there is you can see more middle class Mexicans coming and looking for homes here and spending vacation time here and. Mexicans are discovering their own country. Mm-hmm. And you had to downsize a bit, didn't you? We did. We what decided was like? it was great. Mm-hmm. It's great. It's great to be debt free. It's great to be, you know, living smaller. It's wonderful to disperse at least half, if not two thirds, of what you own. We downsized considerably. And wow, that day when, you know, we had no mortgage to pay, we had no more taxes to pay. And it was in the bank. Mm-hmm. We said, wow, this is really great. I mean, for the first time in both of our lives, you know, we weren't looking at how we were going to keep surviving. We knew now that we had our nest egg mm-hmm. and that we would, if we were really fairly conservative and very, very mindful and paid a lot of attention, that if we could shrink our expenses and you know, land in a place here that was really affordable and keep that as our base and be able to move from here out into the world, the larger world, that it was going to work. We would be satisfied. It Mm -hmm. would be enough. Mm -hmm. And you just arrived there a few weeks ago, right? We did. And we feel very much at home. We love this culture. The people are so sweet and friendly. Um, What a change from Northern California. Not that people weren't friendly there, but... It's a huge cultural shift for you. It's a huge cultural shift. Yeah. But primarily, um, I would say, I mean, we lived in the People's Republic of Berkeley, remember, you know. (laughs) This is true. (laughs) (laughs) You know, where you respect and honor and pay attention and you're politically correct. You're very mindful. That goes a long way here. Mm -hmm. And I think the most important thing, if you want to participate, is to learn the language. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't expect people to speak my language, and they certainly force you to speak theirs. So it's good. Good for you. Tell me about your dad and how his health is doing. My dad has just recently been hospitalized. He had a stroke just about 10 days ago now. Mm -hmm. He's not doing very well. He's very, very afraid. He's very afraid. Um, He is in a rehab clinic, and he doesn't understand why he can't go home. Um, He needs to be stronger to be able to live at home. He's Mm -hmm. wheelchair-bound. Um, Can he speak? Did he lose his language for what? No, not entirely. No, he's the therapies he's doing now is strengthening him, and they are seeing progress. Mm-hmm. He's is having a difficult time understanding why he can't go home and make progress. Why he has to stay? Mm-hmm. He said it's worse than World War II in his <laughs> rehab clinic. Oh, so we're trying to apply kind of the World War II philosophy of you know when you're taken prisoner of war, <laughs> you have to be ingenious and you have to work hard. And you have to show that uh-huh. you, you've got that will and courage to forge your way ahead so that you can make your way out. And are your brothers around him? Yes. Who's supporting um, him? 
we are actually working in tandem. So mm-hmm. I, my youngest brother was there during the sort of the emergency time of him having the stroke and moving into hospitalization. And now my oldest brother, is who lives in New Zealand for half the year, is coming and he's taking over. So mm-hmm. he's more watchful. That's my great. stepmom, you know, my dad's been married, uh, was married again after 10 years mm-hmm. of my mother dying. Mm-hmm. And so she's been, you know, our, the maternal figure in our lives for a long time. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're, we're there too to support her. It's important. She's now in her early 80s. Mm-hmm. So, although full of energy and, you know, uh, sometimes it feels like she's younger than me, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> we're, we're all taking turns to not only care for him, but also to care for her. Mm-hmm. Oh, of course, yeah, she needs it too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, she's propping him up as she always has. And mm-hmm. I think it's very interesting to make a, a sort of a comparison between, you know, the, 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 the male... I think expectations, particularly from the World War II generation, of, you know, the wife having to sort of stand by her man. And, you know, my stepmom wants, she's got family on the mainland and she wants to be able to travel and go see her grandkids and all that. And she, you know, my father has a high expectation that she's present and she's there to support him and he needs it. Wow. He needs to know that his champion is there 24-7 and he's actually been um, having a very hard time if she's not there when he wakes up and she's gone home to sleep. He makes a raucous in the rehab clinic about it and, Hmm. you know, he's actually had to go back to the hospital because he was you know, had such high anxiety that they didn't quite know how to calm him down. So yes, you know, they've had to medicate him a bit, you know, just to quell that anxiety. On the other side of things, my my mother-in-law, who's also 95, born the same year, Mm -hmm. and has lived mostly a single life, Mm -hmm. um, is absolutely determined that she's coming to Mexico. Well, then. (laughs) (laughs) Even though she's having a very hard time walking, even though she has you know, considerable medic- medical challenges. She's determined. She's determined to walk again. She's determined to travel again. And she's going to come here and see this because she thinks it's so exciting. Oh, no doubt. Now, <laughs> does, does she live on her... Does she? You said she lives... Does she live alone? She's not living alone anymore. Okay. She okay. has She has a caregiver living with her. In-home, uh, okay. She, 24-7 in-home care, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. that caregiver could come with her. Yes, hopefully. Uh, if not, her, you know, Stephen's sister will come. She certainly can't travel by herself. No. no, no um, but no. we are encouraging it, and we're not sure if that's going to happen, but nonetheless, we're encouraging it. Uh-huh. Um, and we are not encouraging my dad. We're not encouraging the travel. Um, uh-huh. He just can't actually take it in that I'm, you know, where I am. He doesn't actually, he hasn't grasped that totally. Uh-huh. How has this been for you? You know, honestly, I think that being the only daughter for a time and being the one to come look after my dad, spend times with my dad, just my dad and I for years while my stepmom would take her breaks and go see her family. My dad and I became very close mm-hmm. uh, from, I would say, the time he was in his mid-50s. And uh, even though he's close to all my brothers, uh, you know, I was I was the one. He and I traveled together. We took trips together. We wrote stories together. We I published and edited two books for him mm-hmm. on all his stories. Mm-hmm. He and I have collaborated and you know and talked especially about feelings and about 
you know, who he is as a man. We just became very close and very intimate. Mm -hmm. But things have shifted because, you know, first of all, it's a long way for me to travel when I come. Mm -hmm. So just to come for five days and take care of him so my stepmom can take a little break is more difficult now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she was, it wasn't, the news of us coming to Mexico wasn't easy for her. Mm -hmm. For my dad, he just has the expectation anyway. But my brother's, you know, I've had to state, you know, here's my position, mm-hmm. and we will all need to take our parts. And I have to say they've stepped up really well. That's good. Really helped. That's and good. Um, I haven't become, you know, the daughter that has to step up. Mm-hmm. Um, so often that's the case in families. Yeah, you threw down the gauntlet, though, it sounds like. I threw down the gauntlet, <laughs> and I made it public. I mean, I, you know, to all my brothers uh-huh. that, so this is for all of us to share now, this, this, you know, depth into elderhood is is different, and it's not for one person to carry. So, uh, you know, we just have to just shape things a little differently. Mm-hmm. So now my brother will come, and he will have his time there. Um, he also has family there, so it's more logical for him to have more time there. And then I will come and, you know, spend eight to ten days and contribute what I can, and, uh, you know, then another brother will step up. So. Mm-hmm. How long will he have to be in the hospital? He will be there as long as he's making progress. As long as he's making progress, they will keep him until they say he now can, someone else can take care of him safely in his home. I see. The stroke was fairly recent, too, so that's going to take some time. It is. Mm -hmm. So um, we'll see. You know, for now, we're taking it a day at a time. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, with parents really in old age like this, I think a day at a time is a really good perspective. (laughs) My mom always says, I don't want to know what's around the corner. (laughs) No, just, you know, let's, hey, what you're doing today. And, you know, and, and the thing is, it's so interesting, I think, as we get older and older, is that we do in fact, become more present. And so I don't, you know, you find my conversations change with him. I didn't, you know, when I call up now, I don't ask about the past or where did he go or what did he have for breakfast? It's what are you doing now? Mm -hmm. What's happening now? Who's with you now? And I think that's key to keep in mind, even though, you know, we we kind of want to get into more of the old conversation that we used to have, which is, you know, you tell me how you're doing and I'll tell you how I'm doing. And, (laughs) you know, we can, we, we have that conversation, but it is, and and his hearing's changed and his, and his comfort has changed and Mm -hmm. his, you know, he sleeps a lot more and all that. So, you know, I, I mean, I see the disappearance, you know? Yeah. Is that Um, hard for you? Certainly with every, certainly with every visit. Well, I think in a lot of ways, I might be the like the realist in the family. I've never been afraid to talk about death. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the reasons I love writing about it so much mm-hmm. is because I think it's a conversation just as much as the beginning of life. Mm-hmm. It's just as important to talk about the end of life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I'll be the one. So, Dad, where do you want to be buried? My brothers joke about it all the time and say, you know, they make jokes about where my grandparents are buried. It's a place called, um, I can't remember the name of it, but... Somewhere in New it's a, Zealand. It's a Maori name in New Zealand where mm-hmm. they're all buried, you know, mm-hmm. and, it's, and as soon as my dad gets really difficult to whatever it is, it's like, okay, guys, let's, you know, t- let's cart him off to Tarahira, it's called. <laughs> let's cart him off to Tarahira, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and it's just, you know, it's like that awful male jokey kind of thing. That, yeah. 
And I go, hey, he, he does it, you know. He's sensitive and prideful, very, very prideful, mm-hmm. as is my stepmom. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I'm more sensitive to that kind of thing. And, and I'll, you know, I can ask him questions like, are you afraid of dying? Mm-hmm. And you can ask, can I ask you something? Mm-hmm. Can I ask you something I'm really curious about, Dad? Would you mm-hmm. mind if I ask you this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So It's really um, backing in very slowly and finding the right moment. Absolutely. It is. Yeah. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell us about your screenwriting work and why you've chosen to focus on end-of-life issues. Well, all through the process of... I- my publishing career and through, and through the nonprofit work and creating projects, I've had to write and write and write. And so I decided when I stepped out of the nonprofit world that I wanted to write for me. Mm-hmm. I wanted what was I going to write about and mm-hmm. what form would that take? And so I started to think about, you know, just sort of wild mind kind of Natalie Goldberg. I'll just sit down and I'll write every day and see what comes up. And I tried that for for a while, and lots of stories and memories and feelings and things surfaced. But I think it was because of my years of observing films unfolding and the process and being sort of through osmosis, I guess, you Mm -hmm. know, part Mm -hmm. of that process so deeply. And also having a very visual mind Mm -hmm. that I thought, I I think of stories in in visual ways. And so they play out in my head scene by scene and very much through dialogue. So I found it easy to write dialogue, although I was really an ingenue when I sat down to actually start learning about the screenwriting form. My dialogue was horrendous, Mm -hmm. like, oh, my God, this is not how I hear it in my head. Or I can't read this out loud. This sounds terrible. (laughs) But I took to, I joined the UCLA, the the postgrad writing online courses, and I just started to learn about the form and try it out. And, you know, it just takes courage. You just sit down and you go, okay, guys, this may sound really dumb, but maybe not. Mm -hmm. Maybe it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I tried it out and, you know, with other students. And so a couple of years into taking courses and going on retreats and trying out different stories. I had a story from my childhood from Beirut I wanted to write, and I used that for a while as a platform. I was drawn into caregiving my best friend in her last days of her life. Mm -hmm. And that was the summer of... I guess it was last, not last May, the the May before that, where it became evident that, you know, the the treatment that she'd been having for nine years, really, those options were running out quite quickly. And I I always committed myself to taking care of her in her late years when she just said, I I really need you now. And I said, great, I'm coming. I'm going to put down everything and I'll be there for you. And I kind of forgot about the screenwriting through the, although it wasn't forgetting about the love I had for it, but certainly the practice of it. Mm -hmm. And then one day I was coming up to visit her and I was the only one there. And I learned that her doctor, um, this was the oncologist that really had directed her, her wellness, I would say, throughout her nine years of surviving cancer. And he was coming to visit by surprise. And there was a lot of things that was incomplete about my mother's death, really knowing what was going on. I was 16, turning 17, and my father was very protective of all of us and saying, you just, you know, go ahead, continue with your daily lives because telling you blow by blow what's going on with your mother's illness is actually not something I don't think you can hold Mm -hmm. Um, at this age. She's really not well and she's getting sicker is basically the information I had. And then she was dead. Mm. 
So a lot of incomplete stuff for me around death. Mm-hmm. And when this oncologist arrived this day, and she heard that the, the, the chemo treatment there wasn't any there weren't any other options the chemo treatment would have to end her hope disappeared and she knew she was on the threshold of death and to witness the conversation between the two of them was so profound and had such a major impact on me that I swore that I would write about this so that I could come to terms with what had happened to me and how fortunate and how grateful I was to have been in that space to have seen, to witness that conversation. Mm -hmm. So I did, I wrote about that, and that was the first screenplay. I wrote a 20-minute film on the conversation and what happened and what occurred Mm -hmm. in that time, in Mm -hmm. that couple of hours of that visit. It was called The Visit. And was that what you would call a a healthy conversation about her end of life, the way he presented it? It was. It was tender, compassionate. It demonstrated great listening. It allowed for the sadness um, opening to what was really happening, which is, you know, my life is going to end now. Mm-hmm. Just sounded so honest. It was honest. It was even funny. I mean, she had <laughs> yeah. the baseball game on when he came and surprised her. <laughs> and <laughs> she kept the baseball playing. <laughs> and the two of them were baseball buddies. They talked about the Yankees every visit she mm-hmm. went, you know, to mm-hmm. see him. And all of a sudden there was a really bad play in the <laughs> middle of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And the two of them went, oh, shit, oh, no, uh-huh. look what he just did, you know, and the uh-huh. swearing and the whole thing going on about uh-huh. that, and then back to the conversation. But it was everything. It was everything. It was presence. It was kindness, uh, just all of that, and real. I think it opened my eyes to writing about stories, first of all, of close friendship, and bearing witness is the cornerstone to friendship. And so throughout the process, after that moment, it kind of broke me open to bearing witness to her process. And the second screenplay that I wrote is about how having an end-of-life conversation between two friends plays out and bringing a perspective as she did to the whole process, which is my daddy always used to say, the weak pull down the strong. And that opened up our conversation Hmm. about why she believed that and what her observations were Mm -hmm. about, I'm too much work for everybody now. This is really hard to take care of me because I'm dying. And I opened it up and started to talk about what does it mean to make honorable closure in relationships. Mm -hmm. And I've been fortunate throughout my last 20 years to have a wonderful teacher and mentor in a woman called Angelus Arian. She's a cross-cultural anthropologist Mm -hmm. and was based in Sausalito. And she taught me about honorable closure and to say what's so when it's so and to say the things that you really, you know, how that person has impacted you in your life and the contribution they've made towards your life. And then to talk about things that you've struggled with in terms of relationships, mm-hmm. uh, in relationship with that particular person, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and if there's any reparation, and then to say thank you and to be grateful and what you're grateful for, and to say I love you and 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 goodbye. Those mm-hmm. are the three essential things in mm-hmm. making honorable closure. Mm-hmm. So we were sitting together on the couch one night, and she was particularly weepy, and she was worried about her godchildren coming, mm-hmm. to, because. 
she was very close. She had five godchildren, one of them being my son. Mm-hmm. She said, how do I talk to them? I want them all to come, and I want to be able to say goodbye, but I don't know how to do it. So I said, well, there is a way to make honorable closure. Do you want to practice with me? So the two of us had that conversation. Mm-hmm. She said, okay, you go first, Deb. So I was able to tell her all those things. And, you know, she wanted you, She wanted to know, so you'll never replace me, right? You'll never, oh. nope, there'll never be another friend like you to me. <laughs> you were unique. You are uh-huh. always going to be my Janie, and that's that. And, uh-huh. you know, then we had a good stiff drink. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. And it was said, it was said, uh-huh. and it was complete. Uh-huh. And I asked her, you know, do you know, are you complete now with this? She said, yes, now I feel ready. I, maybe I should have the, you know, and we started to talk about how she wanted her funeral. And I want somebody to sing at it. I want them to sing gospel. I said, in a mm. synagogue? You want them to <laughs> sing gospel? Of course. It's me. Are you kidding? Of course I do. Oh, wow. And we started to, and we'd laugh. And then, and it was like that. So that's, uh, that was the second screenplay. That's just so healthy. Yeah. And then I interviewed all the godchildren. And they told me all their stories and how they loved her and what they remembered about her. Mm-hmm. And she called her godchildren the God Kiss. <laughs> mm, how sweet. Because she loved them so much. Yeah. And so the third screenplay is called The God Kiss. Oh, that's great. That's great. <laughs> then as I had a coach, I had a screenwriting coach, she said to me, you know, Deb, you're only 30 pages from writing a feature here. <laughs> I went, a whole feature? <laughs> she said, of course, you just need to set context. Uh-huh. Like everything in life, oh, you just I need see. to set context. That's hilarious. So mm-hmm. um, I said, of course. Mm-hmm. So, so she said, write about the fun you had. Why did you care about this woman so right. much? So I went back and I did 30 pages and I put it all together. And I have 100 pages of this story mm-hmm. and it's called Dying to See You. I so, love that. Yeah, so I feel really proud, and I've been told it's industry-ready, and I've had some wonderful, wonderful feedback. That's great. But it's a joy now. It's Mm -hmm. really a joy to write Mm -hmm. these stories, and Mm -hmm. I'm looking for other themes and ways in which to talk about this because I think it's essential. It is essential, and it's not such a fearful thing. I mean, we we don't really deal with death in this culture. No. We, We really don't, so we need to find ways to talk about it, and... I think it's a wonderful thing that you've, you've taken that on. Well, it was so interesting that a move was welcomed here by the Mexicans on Day of the Dead. Oh, how interesting. So we literally landed during the Day of the Dead. Wow. And, you know, we go into the main square, and there are all of these ofendra, is what mm-hmm. they call them, mm-hmm. which are little altars, mm-hmm. and they are flower altars made of offerings to the ancestors to invite them to come back and celebrate and (laughs) remember Mm -hmm. and enjoy Mm -hmm. and take in, you know, what these people meant to the Mm -hmm. living. Mm -hmm. It's an invitation. It's about an invitation Mm -hmm. to again participate and remember. So, you know, I thought that was a brilliant time to enter Mexico for us. Yeah. And um, it was amazing to see and be part of and, you know, to put on the mask of the ancestors. As you begin your new life. As we begin our new phase mm-hmm. here, you mm-hmm. know, this, this new journey here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, it's so positive. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's all really good. Yes. Well, I've kept you on the phone for quite a long time, and I really appreciate your indulging me in this fabulous conversation. Thank you so uh, much, Jenna. It's do you been have a pleasure. Uh, do you have any thoughts you'd like to leave the listeners with? Well, I'd say if 
in your belly, in the depths of your belly, there's something wonderful in your life you'd like to do or that you've always hoped you would do, don't wait. Just go for it. Just, just, you know, just check in there. And if it feels really true, invite it and see what happens. Open up to it and enjoy. Well, that's wonderful. Deborah Goldblatt, thanks for being on the show, Deb. Thanks so much, Jenna. <laughs> Take you care. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening. I'd love to know what you thought about today's show. You can email me at Jana at agewise.com. That's J-A-N-A at A-G-E-W-Y-Z, or Z, as my Canadian mother says. You can also find me online at agewise.com. And listen to this podcast and lots of other fresh ones on the Speak Up Talk Radio Network, the 24-7 streaming and on-demand radio network that's always on for you. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. Until then, age well, age wise. <laughs>